fix on one person and all of a sudden that person isn't part of the crowd anymore. They become an individual, just like that. Just became irresistible. So you followed women? I followed anybody. I just wanted to see where they went, what they did. It was supposed to just be completely random. You would never follow the same person twice. That was the most important one. That was the one that I broke first. That's when the trouble started. I got burgled yesterday. What's it feel like being uh, broken into? You developed a taste for it. The violating, the wireism, it's definitely you. Hey, all you cool cats and kittens! It's uh, <laughs> it's Josh and Stephen back. We're uh, another episode of Tiger King. <laughs> that was um, I don't know how we didn't touch on that last time, but <clears throat> Tiger King, because uh-huh, because we just couldn't get into it. I, yeah, I that's think a podcast really, in of itself. We yeah, I was gonna say we need a whole recording to vote it to just that, but <clears throat> I don't think I have the strength for that. <laughs> but basically, uh, welcome back is what it is. To who's whose filmography is it anyway? Where well, the points don't matter, but the films do. <laughs> <laughs> You're here live with uh, Josh Page and Steve Molina, breaking things down. The filmography, you may be wondering, is uh, our very own Christopher Nolan, and Stephen has um, extensive background research, which he will dive into, and I will chime in. And um, today we'll be looking at uh, his first feature-length film, following. But before we get there, we'll... Let's talk about the man himself. Uh, Born on July 30th, 1970, which makes him 49 years old. Born in London, the West End, which is uh, where following, which we will talk about, was filmed about dual citizenship between uh, America and Britain because his mother was American, his father was British. He split his residency between uh, London and Chicago which, uh, you know, plays a big role in a lot of his movies, particularly The Dark Knight, uh, The Dark Knight, where it was shot in Chicago. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until Dark Knight Rises when he switched to New York. You know, who else uh, loves and films in Chicago, at least they did when they were alive, was uh, John Hughes. Ferris Today Bueller. we're going to really see the ties between Nolan and John Hughes and how Chicago unites them both i feel like if you were to blend john hughes and christopher nolan you would have the perfect filmmaker because they both lack each other's strengths you know like christopher nolan is great at the big like just the big in general you know he knows how to put on a spectacle Mm -hmm. but john hughes knows how to do dialogue which christopher nolan has Clear. He has trouble. He clearly has difficulty with that. He's much better at story than with actual dialogue. He's also often, not always, but he's often humorless. Um, I disagree with that, actually. I find, I mean, him as a person, I don't know, but uh, his movies yeah. have more humor in them than we give him credit for. There's, I, 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 I think that they're subtle, and we can get into this, but 
it's it's subtle but i think it's more in like almost in the performances of certain people like what i think of um um like michael even michael Caine's style you know lines in the batman movies they may not come across as funny so to speak but because he's supposed to be this witty british yeah. butler they come off he he nails that that tone in terms of it being funnier than or immediately what came to my mind was uh tom hardy in inception you know when he brings out the huge ass gun he's like oh yeah you gotta dream a bit bigger darling yeah oh yeah that's good yeah and mom- again that's i i think that's in the almost in the performance than I don't know. I almost feel like Nolan's not that funny on the paper, but on the pen and paper, but I don't, I don't know. I mean, yeah, his wife is much more interesting to me because she is Emma Thomas and she is a producer on every single one of his movies. And did she, didn't she appear in this film? She appeared uh, twice in this film. Okay. Uh, This film being the following, we'll get into who she is later. Uh, he started filming at the age of seven when he uh, took his father's eight millimeter camera. Uh, something really interesting I found was, did you know that he is colorblind? Uh, yes. He cannot see red or green. Um, so traffic lights must be a real joy for him. You know who else is colorblind is uh, Nicholas Winding Refn. Really? Which, yeah. That which shocks me more than Nolan. Because Nolan... <clears throat> more right. Nolan is more monochromatic in his movies, I um, find. And Refn is all about, let me just make the most vibrant colors pop as often as I can. Absolutely. Like when you think of, like right off the bat, I'm thinking Neon Demon. You know, yeah. that's all about the flash of color. Every, there's every frame of that. Or Only God Forgives with the, the, the purplish, reddish, and just it just glows. And it's just in a way that's almost like a cartoon. Like it's very out there. I'll be honest, I have not seen only god forgives we'll uh we'll get to him uh, um <clears throat> some of his influences uh some of these may shock you some of these may not he was a big fan of blade runner and alien and just ridley scott in general he's also a huge fan of orson wells because you know who isn't nolan is also a big fan of the original star wars and michael mann which again doesn't shock me makes sense yeah you know one of his big pushes over the past couple years is, um, you know, keeping film alive. He's starting to clash with uh, the way times are changing. He just like has this zero sum policy for people who refuse to use film. And, you know, not everyone can use film. He sure. has a quote out there saying, as soon as television, uh, no, sorry, that's the wrong quote. I misplaced the quote, uh, but never mind. Essentially, what he was saying is <clears throat> film is cheaper, so he doesn't understand why people don't use it. But that's complete bogus, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not here to argue film versus digital, but I'm going to say flat out that film, maybe the cameras and the film stock are cheaper, but the costs around film are a lot more because you got to pay like, for more yeah. lighting. You got to you know ultimately it's more hands-on so you think it's more expensive yeah um it's I, he definitely falls in the category with scorsese and tarantino where it's like they want to preserve film in this glorious sense that they knew it as when they were growing up as kids so it's like i get the rebellion i get the clash it's something that we're going to hear about for however many more years to come until digital really 
consumes the media, which we're on the opposite end of that scale, that scale. Like we're definitely closer to that than not. Well, I think that digital has become the norm and film has become an aesthetic choice. Exactly. But, you know, I guarantee film is going to be around for a very long time because... Yeah, I mean, as long as people can get their hands on it, I mean, there are people who are going to want to shoot on it. I mean, and when you, when they released uh, the Hateful Eight screening, um, what was that? Was that 16 millimeter? Yeah. They did... um, They'll do special like theatrical screenings or events where they'll like, hey, presented in film. I mean, it's almost become a special occasion when you see that something is presented in film. Um, to your point, Tarantino is very much in the same vein. You know, Hateful yeah. Eight was intentionally shot in 70 millimeter. Yeah. But Scorsese kind of wavers every now and then. Um, well, I think in his older age, he's just learning to bend. He's just saying, you know what, I'm just... I'll, that's that's my take is that he's probably he's probably just giving in he's probably saying you know what between going digital and going to streaming services for platforms like yeah is it what i want to do no but like is this where the, the technology and the age is going then yeah i don't really have a choice he's sort of giving in i feel well i think it comes down to two things exactly what you said it's about you know can he get the movie made that's what's most important to him clearly because he's going back to streaming services for his next movie Right. But something like Hugo, he knew that he couldn't achieve what he was looking for in Hugo if he didn't go digital because he was intentionally doing 3D. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, it's, you yeah, I mean, they specific visions. Uh, I didn't see Hugo in 3D. I actually wish I did. Um, <clears throat> in the latter years, it's funny to see how 3D slowly just disappearing oh. from certain platforms. But I think in its essence, that's one of those movies that, like, I get it like um, movies like Gravity. Like there are certain experiences, the Gravity I did see in 3D, but there are certain experiences that it's designed for rather than being a gimmick. Like I remember when I saw the first Avengers movie, I think for my second or third time in theaters, one of them was 3D and I just remember having a miserable time. It just, Mm -hmm. everything was dark and it just didn't, everything popped in ways that didn't feel natural, but for it to pop like it does in Hugo where it's like the world was almost designed for this. is something that's- I saw it in 3D. And uh, it was snowing in the fucking theater. It was beautiful. Oh, man. That's so good. We could talk about this for oh, quite some time, but I think he is the first director to truly catch on to the idea of you do one for me, I do one for you with the oh, studio. He's, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm, I definitely don't disagree with that. He I mean, solidified you can that. that model in yeah. just a couple years. From what I recall is that he had just wanted to do Batman Begins with not necessarily not doing a sequel, but he didn't have it in mind. He had kind of just wanted to do this one movie. Mm-hmm. And then it was kind of like, even when the studio was like, oh, we want more. It's almost like you didn't, you've kind of felt in the Dark Knight, even though he delivered what was, I guess, objectively a better movie to a lot of people. But it's also, you really felt it with like the Dark Knight Rises, which is like, he, okay, like he put passion in there, but at the same time, like his heart didn't seem completely in it. He will never admit it, but he did Batman Begins to do The Prestige. He yeah, did absolutely. The Dark Knight to do Inception. And he did The Dark Knight Rises to do Interstellar. Interstellar, yeah. And true. after he completed his Dark Knight trilogy and was the producer, along with his wife, on the DCEU movies, Man of Steel mm-hmm. and, um, and Batman vs. Superman. And I mm-hmm. believe Justice League, which you know, we definitely uh-huh. have to get it to. You know, he made Warner Brothers enough money and he gave them enough clout to now they're willing to give him $200 million to make Tenant, which is a movie with no 
uh, pro- like it. There's no IP behind it. It's just there's nothing. His, uh, it's his brainchild. It's also like there's no. He's reached that point. He already had, I think, a couple of years ago. But he's already reached the point. You just got to throw his name on a screen, even with an image, and it's just um, that alone. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we'll get we'll get people to see whatever it is he's putting out. He's one of those rare directors that people are pulled in simply by the name. You know, him and Tarantino are the only like, I mean, they're around the same age. So like of that generation, they're like the only, and I guess Paul Thomas Anderson are, they're really the only ones who are like, oh, we need to see the director's movie. We've crossed into a territory, they've crossed into a territory that's, I don't want to call mainstream, but it's, they've reached enough wide audiences that it's not just film nerds. It's like a lot of just mass audiences in general because mm-hmm. even Scorsese has reached such a legacy but it's like every now and again you're still you still feel like he's not quite reaching a, a wide audience as the way he would as the way someone like Nolan would if only because he has the Batman movies you know what I mean absolutely and Nolan is really the only consistent batter at the plate because right. you can pull up like we said Tarantino well Hateful Eight didn't do well at the box office at all right right you know Scorsese even in recent years, silence crashed and burned at the box yeah. office so much. Despite that what ha- you want to say about the quality, it's like they still are not making their money. You know? Yeah, exactly. Silence, I think, made like two million dollars at the box yeah. office. It tanked yeah. to the point yeah. where he had to go crawling to Netflix to get money for his next movie. Yeah, and that's Scorsese, who's like yeah. the master. It says a lot. It yeah. speaks volumes for for the the filmmaker and the times. And I think that you make a good point that he's no one's almost learned to it's almost like he's really rolling with the times he's like as much as he may lash out against comic book movies or in general or digital or whatever whatever it is that he is making his flaunting his opinions about he's he knows what people are watching he knows what people want and he knows what he wants to deliver um and what he doesn't want to deliver um so like you've said consistency is a good word you know he's very is movies all feel alike and they feel like they're just going with whatever's happening in the age, whether it's representing IMAX in ways that we've never seen because in ways we may not see for a little while, you know? (laughs) That's a great point too, though. You know, he kind of helped make IMAX what it is today, in my opinion. I have no proof. I have no numbers in front of me. I have no proof, but that dark night sequence, again, we could go into it deeper when we talk about the the dark Dark night rises with the plane. No, the Dark Knight, the opening heist was shot oh. in IMAX. And that 10-minute sequence, yeah. I believe, changed the way in which people use IMAX cameras in well, general. Yeah. I a think couple years later, you know, mm-hmm. all of Infinity War and Endgame are shot on IMAX cameras, you know? Yeah. He helped build that bridge, you know? Yeah, because prior um, to the Dark Knight, really, IMAX was used for, like, what, museum uh movies like you know you see a movie mm. of a fucking whale <laughs> in a museum yeah. or yeah, an yeah, outer space sure. planetor- planetarium and stuff so disrespectful so disrespectful but it's 100 <laughs> percent true i can't even hear the word planetarium without thinking of south that park. episode of south park welcome to the um, planetarium so uh <laughs> let's talk about do you remember what your first experience with nolan was memento really it was, uh, I saw it in, I want to say it was in high school. Um, I went through the phase that many yeah, teenagers do 
when they discover a Requiem for a Dream and Donnie Darko for the first time, and they think <laughs> they've transcended philosophical film in the in the uh, kind of blissful stoner sense. And um, I don't know yeah. somehow. So I had friends who a couple of friends who lived in in dorms. We had a, a private school. Um, or kids stayed in, in dorms, and one of, the, one of the kids had like a DVD of Memento. So you gotta watch this movie; it's crazy. And it was, um, you know, just dim the lights and just sit. And it was just kind of one of these things where it's kind of like I took me a couple rewatches, of course, but I remember watching it and think and just feeling like this is extravagant filmmaking. Um, it really that was the first time I felt it. I remember not having a real connection with that movie until later, like in college or so. But it was. Um, I remember seeing Batman Begins in high school and even then thinking that this is probably one of the greatest comic book movies I've ever seen. And I still do think that is one of the greatest comic book movies out there. Oh, absolutely. And I remember just then just thinking like it works so much as being a comic book fan, just it works so much as so many different things because it almost went beyond just being a comic book movie. It was set up as a prequel to the Batman world in ways that could connect to whatever Batman movie universe was out there but it was also just a great story in itself it was just it, it just it felt like it was a great film mm-hmm. it wasn't just a great comic book movie and that was the difference it blended that world and that was the first time so even though I had seen Memento it wasn't until Batman Begins that I was like oh this is um this guy th- this is something special where's this guy been <laughs> where has this guy been for uh you know, all the Angley Hulks and oh, Sam Raimi Spider-Man so that oh, we can all talk about. You know I'm a fan, but that's we can get there in another episode. Well, fan <laughs> of the Sam Raimi Spider-Man, not, not, not of Angley's Hulk. <laughs> My first experience with Nolan was actually The Dark Knight itself. Mm-hmm. I was in Florida uh, visiting my um, cousins down there. And my mother, uh, you know, recommended, hey, do you guys want to go to the movies? And I had not seen Batman Begins at that point. I mm-hmm. went into the Dark Knight like completely blind and I walked mm-hmm. out with my mind fucking blown. I was like, what did I just watch? It's a new man. And this was like, I know the internet existed, but like, you know, internet It's not it. what it was. It's not what it is now. Yeah, in, but I remember spending like hours looking up uh information on will there be a sequel to the dark knight what's sure. going on with the dark knight sequel like yeah, yeah, yeah and then he made inception i'm like come on i just want the sequel of the dark knight and then yeah, ultimately, yeah, yeah. i wish i didn't get the sequel to the dark sure knight. but but after that i watched um prestige and um batman begins obviously mm. and memento was actually recommended to me by one of my exes in high school <laughs> mm-hmm but I saw that and it blew me away too. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, um, it's definitely one of those, um, it's great for younger audiences too. I guess I wouldn't like, I guess young people who want to experience film who are like, cause it's very like, you know, he doesn't really, he may not hit those certain like artsy levels as, um, whatever, like Kurosawa or Ingmar Bergman or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like that's like a, when you get, deeper in the sweaty nerd lore but it's kind of a, a filmmaking but he, he's an incredible introductory kind of filmmaker and you know person to start a, a film journey with but do you remember the first time you watched uh, the following let's bring this into uh, the next part of the whole conversation let's talk about I, the following um i don't recall 
like when I had remembered this movie, I had remembered whatever doing my 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 deep dives into like when I watch uh whatever Scorsese, Paul Thomas Anderson, whoever, and going into their filmography of like going through some kind of Nolan um like routine i guess and it was one of those ones that i had backtracked because i guess it was years back that i watched it but I ha- there was so much i had forgotten mm. that i can't remember a time period i remember feeling like it was inspiring it felt very much like a and we'll go into the the details of it in a, in a bit but i remember feeling like it was very almost felt like a student film and it felt very it reminded me a little of pie um Darren Aronofsky's pie yep. in a sense that it feels like an early work. But um, I remember I just having, it was, I guess it was more images than it was feelings. So it's just, I couldn't really recall it. I, you know, so going back this next time was like almost like watching it for the first time. Um, yeah. What about yourself? Um, kind of like you, I think that I watched it after I saw Inception just because I was going through his filmography and realized I didn't watch one of them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, first movies for most directors are, you know, they're a little rough. They, to me, they're kind of like pilot episodes to the overarching uh, series. You know, yeah. you see kind of the tropes that are ahead of you, mm-hmm. but it's nothing that is, you know, you're going to run home with. I mean, obviously there are exceptions to the rule to first-time directors, but this one is kind of the same. Like within the movie, you pick, you can clearly tell that this is a Nolan movie. It has a mm-hmm. lot of his tropes. Yeah. But, you know, it felt like a pilot TV episode, you know? It felt like um, the beginning of a lot of ideas that would later be represented by bigger budgets and more expanded time to uh, evolve those themes and ideas. Oh, um, there were just little nuggets all over the place. It's like, oh, there's a little bit of that that you would see in Inception or something that you'd see ideas, a lot of Memento. A lot of this feels like a an early pitch for Memento. This felt like an early pitch to Memento or an early pitch to Inception. Right. I Those are the vibes I got for both of them. I got a lot of Inception vibes rewatching it this time. <laughs> there's the nonlinear storytelling, which is like classic Nolan. And then, you know, even uh, very much like Inception, he had the totems, you know? They had the boxes. I made a note that, the objects. He said, um, the to- you know, not about Inception, but about this movie, that um, these boxes and the items in them, or just some of the specific sets that were used were to help the audience identify which timeline you were in. Which makes oh, that's, sense. that's smart. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, I think having tangible visual representations to hold on to is something that I didn't realize appears in, it's a running theme in a lot of his movies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, every single one of his movies, well, not every single one, but a lot of his movies do the nonlinear storytelling. Dunkirk is probably the biggest example of that right now. Inception too, you know, you have the, oh no, we're falling. Five seconds out there is 20 minutes in here and 20 minutes, you know? Yeah, he, he loves taking his time and flip-flopping it. Um, there was a whole section in Interstellar about that. Like when they go to that planet and yeah. three hours that they spent on that one planet is really equivalent to 20, what was it, 27 years? Yeah, on, he's, yeah. He's Earth. very obsessed with um, 
time and, and time running out and time going back and forth and time being connected. Like that's his biggest, that's his biggest thing that he loves to, to, to boast about, you know? Um, and it works, you know what I mean? Like more, I'm not even knocking it. It's just, it's, it's something that is congruent that he just finds new ways to be inventive with it. You know, you want to get into pre-production here? Yeah. I'll let you take, I'll let you start. Cause I don't know what you have and I'll chime in when this movie was shot for six thousand dollars i saw that which makes it one of like the, which is crazy to me that's um, l- literally no money that is no money and christopher nolan said that the script was written with a very low budget in mind because he was paying for it like out of pocket it felt it was one of these it was one of those experiences where it felt like it was so cheap and low budget but it didn't feel like it was hindering the film yeah um he shot uh with no permits (laughs) yeah i believe that he shot you know he didn't get confirmation for some of the places he was filming until the day before he was supposed to film in them (laughs) it's very guerrilla style filmmaking (laughs) absolutely uh he uh what's it called he said that he used minimal lighting. He used as much natural light as he possibly could yep. because lighting is expensive and hard to do. Yes. Yeah, I thought it, I thought it was cool that he and his friends they basically shot on like weekends and on like Saturdays in fifteen minute inter- intervals um, because everyone's working full time jobs, and so yep. it was kind of just like he had to like literally just take advantage of whatever time they had. And I think they shot it over the course of like a year or something because they were just they were taking little breaks. Well, they filmed kind of quickly, but uh, they were they uh, started rehearsal six months prior to actually filming. And okay. he said that was a practical matter because if the actors knew their lines verbatim, then they would be able to take what they know into any environment that they are thrown into. Yeah. Which makes perfect sense. Which is, which is good, you know, and it comes off, again, it comes off in a way where it's just, uh, it's so scaled down. He, he knew what he was utilizing everything with his budget and his time. Because oh, everything feels reduced and everything feels small, but it does not feel like it's. Budget is also one of the reasons he shot it black and white. Mm-hmm. He said, obviously, that they're, the noir style fit the black and white, narr- you know, black and white fits noir that he was going for. But because of the lighting situation, again, you know, all he needed to do was put a light in with high contrast. He didn't have to mm-hmm. focus on specific colors. It, it, wor- it, it, works, it works out. This is kind of post-production, but he said that ADR was a disaster for this movie because <laughs> all the people who were in it were, uh, you know, doing other things after he f- finished filming and not long after he finished filming, he moved to L.A. so he could film Memento. They were all moving on to bigger and better things. Yeah, the timing didn't really work out to to get down those details that otherwise would have been maybe smoothed over if they all had, you know, time and whatnot. Yeah, well, you know, he this movie comes out in 1999 and Memento comes out in 2000, you know. It looks like he just picked up his shit and went to L.A. and filmed. One of the stars of the movie, Bill, or uh, the young man, whatever you want to call him. Uh, unemployed, what did I put? Um, unemployed Andy Circus. <laughs> yeah. His real name is uh, Jeremy Theobald. If, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. 
yep. but he helped a lot with uh, pre-production and production in general. Uh, Nolan worked on him previously in his short film Doodlebug, which okay. I don't know if you've seen. No. It's a three-minute short. It's pretty... Cool. Oh, really? Yeah. It's on YouTube? Yeah. It's a good selling uh, point. Yeah, but Jeremy actually helped secure a couple locations for the following, including the bar that they shot in, the Detroit, okay. uh, which was in London. And they, what's it called? Bill's apartment was actually Jeremy's apartment, which is funny. All they yeah. had, and uh, Nolan said that they didn't have to dress the set too much. All they had to do was get rid of his computer and make him really look funny. unemployed. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah. Um, that's good. Yeah, it feels a lot like a student film in that se- oh, in a lot of senses, but in that sense where it feels like they're shooting in people's homes and just uh, apartments and familiar locations. And yeah, it's he just... shot in uh, his parents' flat. He shot in his friends' flats, anywhere that yeah. he couldn't uh, That's cool. Yeah. As we go through it, I'll, I can point out what location is what. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other stars were uh, Alex Haw, How Haw as Cobb. He is not he hasn't gone on to anything else really and then lucy russell as the blonde and did you have the um names that they came up with blonde and um where was the note i made but um was it bald man bald man yeah <laughs> and, no, the police, bold, bold and the guy. policeman <laughs> um policeman which is his brother no that is uh his uncle I will say that this is the, I don't know if you made a note, this is probably unironically, well, no, it's ironically, the um, probably one of the most um, COVID-19 friendly films (laughs) um, I've probably seen in some time in terms of uh, the emphasis on rubber gloves. (laughs) My first thought, the the opening shot was a a hand in a rubber glove. Yeah, we can start talking about the movie now, you know, it, it literally starts with a uh, cop putting on a rubber glove. You see him stretch that thing out and snap I mean, it on his hand. I really like it. Was it wasn't even jarring. It was like wow. I it got to the point where I was, um, I would, I'm already, it's I, I I didn't even second guess the rubber gloves um, amidst COVID season. Uh, and <laughs> in fact, the rubber the rubber gloves have become such a norm that I was already judging the style of latex. I mean, um, this isn't really a COVID-friendly movie because he's breaking into people's houses here. You know, you he, shouldn't be spreading the germs. Well, he's really the anti-COVID. If anything, he is coronavirus because he's following these people around and everyone basically, you know, <laughs> you know, he, he's following the people around and they don't know that he's there. He's coming to their homes. I mean, I, I really I think the most ironic shot was him ca- literally coughing up, coughing up a rubber glove. I, d- I think that's about as coronavirus as it gets. You know what I mean? I really, it just really, um, I think it hits hard with the times right now. Um, and then the, and then the font, the following font, I said, that's, that represents the, the you know, the real broke college kid. I can see him there. You know what I mean? That's broke um, college kid. That's, that should be the title of this movie. Broke as soon college as I saw kids. that font, I was like, Oh man, I can relate to that font. Um, like an art house student film. I said, and, and I'm here for it. But, you know, it opens with the rubber glove. You're cutting between a couple of things. But overall, what you're hearing is Bill monologuing about what he does when he follows people. And he's Mm -hmm. listing his rules to, you know, we find out later. We're going to go into spoilers here. 
obviously. Um, I mean, you talk about coughing up rubber gloves. I mean, it's really just... Well, the rubber glove isn't... You know, we're getting into it. Rubber gloves are very spoiler-friendly. No, but ultimately we we figure out that he's talking to the policeman and he's talking about what his following process is and he lays out his rules. Never follow people for too long. Don't follow women down dark alleys after dark, you know, stuff like that. Most important rule was that even if I found out where somebody worked or where they lived, then you'd never follow the same person twice. That was the most important rule. That was the one that I broke first. Does it not remind you of Cobb in Inception describing the rules of the dreams to Ellen, Ellen Page's character? Well, he does a great job in most of his movies laying out the rules of how things operate. Whatever world that they're in, yeah. And these are the rules. We cannot break them. And here's how we're going to get around them. Naturally. You know, yeah, of course. And then we find out that this movie is cut between three different timelines. It cut, I found out it jumps narratives 31 times. That's 31, crazy. there's 31, where's the, where's the thing? I wrote it down. Um, the narrative jumps 31 times throughout the story, uh, making it perplexing to follow a movie like following this what it said <laughs> it was the, that was the imdb trivia um but i will say uh what was interesting about even in, in the first scene is was the score mm. because even without hans zimmer in his life he still managed to have this the ticking tension in the score that would plague nearly all of his films to tell the audience when to be anxious and when to know like oh there's there's plot happening you know it's the um he loves the the ticking score that is very present in oh, absolutely. Um, not just the Dark Knight, but in Inception and Dunkirk. Um, oh my God. Dunkirk, know, the entire score was a clock. It was just clock, clock. So <laughs> it's just very, it's interesting that even this early on, he uses that ticking as a way to be like, all right, now there's plot happening. It's time to feel on the edge of your seat. And he does it right in the opening shot. And I was yep. like, wow, this is very Hans Zimmer of him, even though Hans Zimmer was not present. And then, uh, we are watching Bill follow who we ultimately learn is Cobb. Uh, and we see Cobb carrying a bag, which makes Bill all the more curious. And he follows Bill in, uh, Bill follows Cobb into a cafe. Fun fact about that cafe. That is not a cafe at all. Really? That is, yeah. That is where uh, Nolan edited his film. Oh, he why he thought that the outside, from the outside, it looked like a hip coffee shop because the cha- he didn't change the chairs or the tables or anything. That was just their lobby area. Oh, that's very interesting. They really made it look like a cafe. Exactly, yeah. Um, just to backtrack, David Julian is the composer. Oh, okay. Went on to score Insomnia, Memento, and The Prestige. I um, thought after uh, Batman Begins, it was all, what's it called, um, Zimmer. But yeah, I guess not. that I guess they had a good relationship. I will say the cafe. I said um, everyone is very British, <laughs> and and uh, I guess the whatever the snobbish sense that comes out, it says. Um, what did you say? I was I, I audibly laughed. It was, um, oh, she says uh, the way when the waitress comes by, she says yes. He says coffee, please. She says come on, it's lunch, and he says fine, toasted cheese sandwich as well. And I said now that's an upsell. Yep, Cobb who clearly had been noticing that Bill was following him, walks up yep. to Bill 
and immediately puts him on the spot asking who the fuck are you (laughs) (laughs) you wasted no time and then bill makes excuses i thought i went to school with you you know bullshit we've all heard it yeah and Cobb is just not buying it at all but i can't believe the cop yeah i can't believe that name the most interesting part of that entire conversation is Cobb asks bill flat out you know are you a writer Bill says, sometimes, who doesn't? Yeah. And then Bill says, me. What's the line he says? Oh, he says, oh, 20-something unemployed, fancies himself a writer, a real leap into the unknown. I said, well, if that doesn't describe many of us. <laughs> I guess they hit it off well enough because Cobb takes Bill on a first he takes break-in. Him, he takes him home, brings him back him. to his place. They have a candle at dinner. Very beautiful 16 candle kind of situation. Um, Takes yeah. him on our first break-in, which I found very funny. Uh, when Cobb pulls out the rubber gloves, and Bill pulls out winter gloves, and it just cuts back to Cobb's huh. face, judging him hard. I found that very funny. Well, here's a fun, an extra fun tidbit. Part of the idea for this movie came about because Christopher Nolan was robbed. Yeah, apparently he came up with the idea after his home was broken into and wondered what the people thought as they went through his belongings. You know, when you're broken into, it causes a necessity to figure out who you are and what is important to you. Cobb psychoanalyzes whoever lives in the uh, in the flat. He's like, oh, they're 20-something, they're 25-year-olds. Look at the books they're reading. Look at this. Right, right, right. But, you know, that's of no interest to Cobb. What is of interest is the box. Everybody has a box, he says. Exactly. Everybody's got a box. I says, is this true? Does everybody have a box? But that was going to be my question to you. I don't. Does everybody? I don't have. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I have boxes somewhere, but not like a, a secret box or a personal I, box. I do I not have a totem box such no. as that. Uh, Cobb spills the box, which aggravates Bill because Bill freaks out. He's like, why would you do that? And Cobb gives a little monologue. It's like a diary. They hide it. But actually, they want someone to see it. That's what I do. You can see on my display, flip sides of the same coin. This way, the nurse, no one's seen it. That's what it's all about. Interrupting someone's life, making them see all the things that they took for granted. Like when they go back and buy all this stuff from the shelves of the insurance money, they'll have to think for the first time in a long time why they wanted all this stuff, what it's for. You take it away. You show them what they had. Yeah, that's a good line. I wrote that, that bit down. That's a good line. Then in walks the woman whose flat it is. And do you know who that woman is? That's his wife. And, that's... you know, Cobb comes up with some bullshit line. Cobb and Bill make it to the roof. But Nolan said that the rooftops are brilliant because they are uh, they are able to give you an urban feel without having to deal with the people watching the camera at large you know once you're on the roof you can get the urban environment behind you but you don't have to deal with the people on the ground sure i mean look at uh tommy Wiseau's the room you know i mean that how much that movie is rooftops and the rooftops come back in this movie so and i was waiting for you know some kind of man to demand money and it never really happened but (laughs) no footballs made an appearance but you know i see what you mean then they cut to we cut to a different timeline, a bar. And by cut, you mean with the fade to black scenes that feel like televised commercial breaks. They definitely go <laughs> black for a second or two longer than they need to. 
I felt like watching a TV show on DVD when it cuts to black, or even on Netflix, and it cut to black, and you're like, oh, there's, there's a commercial break. That uh, bar is called the Detroit. And it's that's the London. first time you see Bill with a fresh cut and a clean shave. Yep. Uh, yeah. Nolan said that what made this place so great, and the person who found this bar was actually uh, Jeremy, the one who played Bill. He said what made this place so great were the doors with the circles on them because mm. very much like the boxes and the totems, it reminds the audience what timeline you're in and yeah. it automatically puts you in that setting. You know immediately from those doors where you are. They uh, didn't have long to film at this bar. They could only film uh, before the crowd started coming in at five o'clock. It so made early sense films. that the timing that they were strapped for timing here because um what's the exchange i don't know if this is exactly how it was with a woman when the well, woman yes, let's uh, preface by saying bill enters the bar and see he orders a drink and sees the blonde at the opposite side of the bar all alone he approaches uh, her go on right no i was gonna say um uh, i know there's a bit of intro but um she sees the the man staring at her and says say something to me and he says like what she slaps him and says, meet me outside in 10 minutes. <laughs> and I said, well, she's a saucy one. Before she goes after that, though, Bill walk, approaches her, like I said, and introduces himself as Danny Lloyd. Uh, the kid from The Shining. Yes, exactly. No. In, no, the child actor is named Danny Lloyd. Is he? Yeah. That what? was actually not... Uh, Danny, Dan, Danny Lloyd is the name of the child actor from The Shining as Kubrick is one of Nolan's primary influences. That was not the influence, and I'll get into that later on. But That's, that's, some, that's IMDb. IMDb sometimes has some fake news. So you're saying Danny Lloyd is another Danny uh, Lloyd reference. is the name on the credit card that uh, Cobb gives Bill later on in the film. But, no, I understand that for the prep for the film it is, but I no, and the, I'll tell you why that credit card was actually the uh, credit card of the person doing the lighting, whose name was David Lloyd. So it just said D Lloyd on the card. So Danny Lloyd is just the name that they pulled out of their asses to match what was on the credit card. So it's not a reference to Danny Lloyd from The Shining, which is even though Kubrick's one of his. Uh, influential filmmakers. Maybe it is. I don't know, but uh, yeah. I like the, that it's a D. Lloyd, and they they came up with that. But that's that's um, you know, uh, you know, and the blonde and Bill are talking, and he's like, "You can't tell me you're with that bald old cunt." Sorry for using such foul language, but that's for for them. Verbiage he used, and for them, it's that's normal talk. Yeah. Well, that introduces the new character, simply known as what bald guy. Bald guy, bald which man. I did not realize we were going in that direction. He literally calls him bald man or bald guy later. Bill takes uh, the blonde back to his apartment, which may not have been the best move given how messy that place was. Uh, yeah, We can jump ahead a little. Cobb and Bill go to Bill's flat. And uh, this was Wait actually the first scene that was shot for the whole movie. Is this the apartment with the Batman logo on the door? Yes, this is the apartment. Very interesting. I this got is very a, excited. This is Jeremy's, that's Jeremy's flat. Literally, that's where Bill lived. 
That's very funny. Yeah, like I said, they didn't even do much dressing up. All they did was take away his computer. Yeah, but what's interesting about this scene is it looks like Bill brought him, brought Cobb to this apartment, not telling Cobb that it is his apartment. He just kind of wanted to be psychoanalyzed. Mm -hmm. Cobb immediately realizes this man, the person whoever lives here, has to be unemployed. We have to get out of here before this person shows back up. It's like he's toying with them. Well, Cobb is is definitely toying with him. Right. Because uh, when they leave the apartment, he's talking about what a sad place this is. And he looks at Bill flat out and says, no offense. Cobb, not taken. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Cobb revealed later on that he knew that that was his apartment because, you know, again, we're jumping ahead quite some time. But mm-hmm. when we realize that Cobb is with the blonde, they have a whole conversation about how pathetic Bill's apartment is. Right. It's like they've, that's their standard for judging people in, in society. It's almost like they've chosen um, whatever, whatever way it is in which people judge each other. Like they, they're getting off on like, you know, um, almost bonding about how, so the state of someone else's apartment and how they leave things. It's, um, it's petty. It's catty. You know what I mean? It's part of their character ultimately. We go to the blonde's flat with Bill where, um, Bill is looking more prim and proper and they're going over what was stolen. Uh, uh, is this when they discuss the panties? This is when they discuss the panties. It's a real great first encounter real. or second encounter. But, but uh, that flat is actually uh, Christopher Nolan's parents' apartment. Then we cut huh. to Bill with preparing with the hammer, which was very, I don't know if you picked up Did, on this. Is this the next scene? Did we talk about them making out with his eyes open? Well, we can, but... No, we don't talk about it. I know if we're jumping to the next scene. Well, they kiss, and then and it's, it's implied, implied that they bang. It's, in, it's totally implied that they bang. Well, later on, um, <laughs> we find out that they did, in fact, have sex. Right. Because Cobb, when he's confronting Bill, is like, did you fuck her? Yeah. Uh, but Nolan said that uh, between the kiss and the haircut and the suit in that sequence, because this is only the, it's the second time you see Bill in that getup. It's really supposed to show you how much like Cobb he is becoming. Right. The hero becomes like the villain or whatever. The one becomes like the other. And yeah, you see a transformation there for sure. Yeah. But the transformation we'll find out is purely under Cobb's design, which is fucked up even more. Right. Right. Then we cut to Bill with Um, prepping his hammer. Stuffing the hammer to his pants. Which, I don't know about you, but I got very uh, taxi driver vibes from that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the hammer was Cobb's idea for Bill to carry around. And that hammer was made of rubber. Then we cut to Cobb and Bill robbing the blonde. Does Bill have a black eye at this point? Because at mm-hmm. po- some point I made a know that he has a black eye. I said, how did he get that black eye? I know you're running the clock, Chris. No, not at this point. Uh, at this point, we cut back to him in with the long hair and uh, in his shabby clothes because this is their first, uh, yeah, this is their first robbery together. Right. Uh, you know, it's when uh, Cobb and Bill go through the underwear. Right? He's taking panties to drop the panties. Yeah. And we also see that Bill 
grabs one pair of panties. It makes me wonder if they're robbing this many panties or dropping this many panties in the same town that if some of these women are friends and maybe like they get very comfortable one of them's like hey so someone stole my panties it's like that's interesting someone left panties in my apartment and then it's like it creates these crazy cat fights. Uh, but they rob a bunch of items on the mantle. Just a fun fact about those items. Uh, Nolan wanted to go back for close-up shots of uh, Jeremy picking them up, but he could not because Nolan's parents were burgled and all of those items were actually stolen for real. (laughs) (laughs) That's really funny, actually. But more important and what's more important to the story is Cobb with with the earring. Yep. See him put one earring in the piano bench, which comes into play later. I did like that. When does the woman say the line he, when they talk about them killing the guy and she says, he messed up my carpet? Let's talk about that scene. She it, says, he messed up my carpet and she chuckles and Bill says, that's not funny. She says, I know, sips tea. And I was like, you're really going for that dramatic film noir flair there, Chris. Uh, the actual robbery where Bill breaks into the Detroit and there's that nice long shot of him walking to the back to the safe in, the, in almost complete darkness. The safe was actually part of the bar before the filming took place. Okay. But no one, not even the owner of the bar, knew what the code to get into the safe was. So mm-hmm. they couldn't actually open it. <laughs> so Nolan just cut around the fact that he could not open the safe. And uh, That's good. That, I, I would now have known that. And the money that was used, Emma and uh, Chris spent several nights photocopying money and cutting it and crinkling it together so it looked real. It looked like money. That's funny. Now the next scene, the uh, restaurant. Back, okay. With Cobb and Bill. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nolan said he picked this restaurant because it's less cluttered, more open than the other place. And uh, again, uh, the credit card that was used was uh, David Lloyd, who was the sound recorder, not the lighting person. That was my bad. Um, The scene had to be shot in three hours. Really? Because they didn't have a lot of time in the restaurant. They had to get out before the the food rush came in. Did three hours to set up, film, and then take down equipment? Yep. Wow, that's impressive. Nolan said after that scene, he gave up completely on using the tripod for this movie. Uh, I was going to say, I have a note somewhere that most of the movie looks like it's shot handheld. Uh, most of it is shot um, handheld. There and, are a couple notable scenes. I don't know if the restaurant in the beginning, the cafe, and then the police conversation at the end mm-hmm. seem like they're maybe on tripods. And then this scene, I think it's the only other one I really noticed. Everything else looks like it's completely handheld. It is completely handheld. Uh, Nolan did a lot of the filming himself. When uh, we'll probably get to it later, but there's a sequence when he had to walk downstairs backwards, and he was like, he's extremely oh, proud God. of that scene because he had to literally <laughs> walk carrying a camera backwards down the stairs. Yeah. Uh, fun. Some other fun facts about this restaurant scene: Christopher Nolan's father is in the background. Really? And according to Christopher Nolan, his father would not stop talking throughout the entire film, <laughs> filming of the sequence. That's really funny. Cobb makes Bill sign for the bill. Because oh, again, okay. going back to what Cobb said in their initial meeting, I do not write. 
You know, he doesn't sign for his own name. He doesn't write. Sign it. Sign it. Sign it. You don't have writing, then you can do anything you want with it. You pick up on that detail? Or was I that in the comment? No, you I picked, picked up on that yourself? That that's was, good. That's my opinion. No, um, that's really good because, well, you watched it twice, right? Yeah. I didn't pick up on that at all. That's a good. Well, it's funny because it's such a, a small line that could otherwise feel like it's so easy to throw away. One thing I'll say about this movie is it's a very dense hour and 10 minutes. Like, a, there's not a moment in this movie that is wasted. No, he utilized it all. Then, what's it I called? Do, I will say it feels like future Nolan to have a very intense plot-driven conversation over a fancy black tie dinner. <laughs> um, it makes the anxiety so much more real. Like, you know that, like, I don't know, it just builds that much more tension that there are this elegant that's the feeling anyway that they are at this elegant restaurant and yet yep. they're having this very quiet conversation about these terrible things and um it Absolutely. feels like something he would do in later movies uh then uh another big moment in that same sequence sometimes when i'm watching a flat i'll see that the owner's about to go on a holiday i'll wait till i go on then move in for a week or two i could be joking no? it's a lot more than you believe i don't know when they're gonna be back almost always marked on the kitchen counter. This comes back to play much later on in the film. Bill is explaining to the police officer what happened. And say, Bill says flat out to the police officer, I gave you uh, Cobb's address. And the police officer says, no, that is the, apart- that is the flat of a uh, Danny Lloyd, mm. not of a Bill, not of a Cobb. Mm-hmm. which means that Cobb was staying in uh, Danny, uh, Lo- Danny Lloyd's apartment right. throughout this entire movie. Right. That's how he got the credit card. Yeah. And that is how he just vanishes into thin air. It's very interesting. Um, it, you say credit card. I, I, did you, um, uh, I made a note that he break, they break into the apartment using a credit card at one point. Oh. Um, which apparently he does in this memento and insomnia as well Mm. and it makes you wonder coming back to how they keep referencing this credit card um you know obviously plays a very pivotal role (laughs) i forget who said it and i'm gonna i think it was antonioni and uh i'm gonna botch his quote completely because i don't have it in front of me but it this whole thing is just reminding me of his quote he said that filmmakers only make the same film over and over again yeah yeah that's well kinda... that's one of those tropes that's how it feels like once you see once you know memento and inception as well as you do watching this is almost like not hindering but you're kind of like oh this is just what you originally wanted to do but you now you got to do a little bigger and better once you had bigger budgets and more yeah. expansive ideas now when Cobb and bill are eating at the restaurant in walks the woman who's flat that they broke into earlier. Yes. And Bill is freaking out. He's like, we need to get the fuck out of here. Like, how can you want dessert when... <laughs> I was just going to say, the line I wrote is, Bill says, mind if I, mind if we skip dessert? And cop says, yes, I fucking mind. What if we skip dessert? Yes, I fucking mind. There you go. You said he had it. no humor. He said he was humorless. He's mostly humorless. <laughs> He's got it. It's just, it's very, it's just very rare, but moments like that, it's kind of like, you know, puts you on edge and it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, because Cobb pulls out, uh, Cobb says flat out, she's with a different man. She's with Mm. her boyfriend. They're not going to make a scene. 
but Bill ultimately pulls them out of the restaurant, paying for the food. They get out. They get the fuck out of there. Mm-hmm. And Cobb pulls Bill aside and uh, essentially lambasts against him. Wait about your parents? Why don't you change it? You haircut instead of clothes. Your mother won't recognize you. I mean, just because you break into people's homes doesn't mean you need to look like a fucking burden. Well, isn't it? Isn't it the next scene that he changes his whole appearance? Uh, yeah, that is the next scene. He shaves his hair. Uh, well, cuts his hair and shaves his beard. Now, what's funny about that is apparently Nolan made the actors look that way for weeks. Like oh, he really? would not let him get a haircut or a shave <laughs> for weeks because he wanted him to look grungy. And he had to make double, triple sure that they shot all of the long haired sequences prior to him cutting oh, his hair. So disrespectful. So disrespectful. <laughs> <laughs> After he changes his whole look, He's unpacking the bag uh, of the items they stole from the blonde. And, you know, he pulls out the passport photos, as they called it. They, he pulls out the stuff. And more, most important of all, he pulls out the box. Mm-hmm. And Nolan said that this box took forever to come up with because in the, what had to go in the box had to be uh, something that would be interesting to Cobb himself. Okay. So So it was the concept that took a while? It was what went into the box that took a while. Because they're like, they needed to figure out what would be interesting enough to Cobb to have him put in a box. Right. So there's a seahorse, a couple pounds, a candy bracelet, and a photo of a little girl. And that photo is actually a picture of Christopher Nolan's mother. Really? Yeah. Bill calls Cobb uh, and essentially is telling him that he wants to do a robbery all by himself. Okay. And it's at that moment that we cut to Cobb, who is with the blonde. Yeah, no, scumbag. I um, I, I kind of knew, I mean, I didn't know, but like they're building to this estranged relationship that I feel like it was only inevitable that something like that would happen. That's the next scene. Bill is taping the money to himself. Yes. And into the bar walks this man, this random man, beats him to death with a hammer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it felt it felt very um kind of out of nowhere. Um I get it I get that it's I think you bring up a good comparison with taxi driver. It's almost how it feels like they're building towards a psychotic break. This feels like the beginning of that break. Like it's been building to this moment, but this is the first time for me. I was like, this feels not out of character, but it feels so unexpected. It just really, I didn't see it coming, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. And it's at this moment that the really like frenetic music picks up because things have really taken a turn here. It's definitely the first physical moment that shit really starts to go down. Uh, we cut to Lucy's house, uh, Lucy's flat again. Uh, and what's the most important part of this entire exchange is we see the setup as to why Bill broke into the Detroit bar. Because mm-hmm. the blonde is telling Bill that she wants to leave the bald guy. Okay. Again, I don't know if that's that's the, his the name. Di- 
I don't know if it's the dialogue where he says, are you still seeing bald guy? And I wrote, Bill literally calls him bald guy. (laughs) (laughs) And to which, I'm sorry, just one more note. I felt like at this point, the estranged relationship between two men and a beautiful blonde woman suddenly felt very reminiscent of the prestige. Because if you don't, if, if you recall the two men both share a relationship with this woman and she's duping one of the men and she's actually seeing, you know, the other one. So it's really that relationship is mirrored almost exactly in the prestige. Shit. That just blew my mind. (laughs) (laughs) How did I get here? How did I get here? I, Um, I, I was immediately came to mind when I, all of a sudden they're going back. I was like, yo, this is, I didn't even put that. That's brilliant. Shit. Yeah. But uh, again, the most important part of this uh, scene is the blonde dupes Bill into breaking into the Detroit and stealing an envelope in the safe, which has pictures that oh, Bill yes. is not allowed to look at. Oh, yes. Um, that's later, though. He opens them, right? I'm going to. Yeah. Okay, because keep going. The next sequence is the rooftop. That's, we're back to the room? No, the roof. The, uh, from the room. The rooftop from the room. Ha. <laughs> what a story, Josh. <laughs> what a st- <laughs> lots That's of outdoor it. shots. Lots of rooftops. Lots, lots of streets. Of rooftops. Well, yeah. Like I said earlier, Nolan said, liked the idea of building an urban environment through rooftops. And saving budget by shooting in outdoors yep. and not getting lighting. Uh, and then they fight. Um, yes. They have a fight on that rooftop. Well, Bill tells Cobb flat out that he is seeing the blonde. Uh, then, which, as far as Bill knows, Cobb only knows the blonde woman as the person whose apartment they just broke into. Right. So, Cobb asks flat out, "Are you sleeping with her?" And Bill says, "Yes." And that is when Cobb starts to beat the shit out of Bill. Apparently, they had to rehearse the fight the day before. Mm -hmm. They wanted a scrappy fight. And the laundry hanging is actually Bill's uh, costuming from the previous scenes. But after Cobb beats Bill, he says to him, good luck on your solo career. Um, Get a start on your new solo career. And he shoves the glove in his mouth. But then we cut to... uh, It's a bunch of cuts, but... Cobb is talking to the blonde and essentially they are doing an exposition dump where Cobb is telling, well, first of all, Cobb is jealous that the blonde has been banging Bill on the side. The blonde is like, well, I needed to gain his trust and this was your plan because the plan we find out is to pin everything that is coming on Bill. Correct. Including what Cobb is saying. Cobb is also telling the blonde that he beat a woman to death. And that needs to be pinned on Bill too. Cobb, to that point, did not beat a woman to death. The mm-hmm. woman that he's talking about is the blonde. It gets, uh, gets very dark. <laughs> so disrespectful. <laughs> so disrespectful. But we also see, uh, what's it called? We also see Bill opening the envelope that he should not have opened. 
to reveal modeling photos. To reveal modeling photos. Nothing incriminating at all. Nothing oh. that the blonde should have been worried about. No good. No good. And it's at this point that Bill figures it all out, essentially. And he goes to back to the blonde's back to the blonde's flat, and Very confront, funny. confronts uh, her in the hallway. She opens the door, and uh, he lightly slaps the woman. But the blonde explains flat out to Bill, "Yeah, Cobb needed a patsy for this whole thing." Bill learns that Cobb uh, beat a woman to death and got caught, and he needed someone to look exactly like him which is why Cobb pushed Bill so hard to change his look. Mm. In the last sequence, we cut to the interview between Bill and the police officer. But then the police officer, after Bill is done speaking, is essentially saying, yeah, but Cobb doesn't really exist. He starts pulling out the items that they found in Bill's Apartment. They had the already earring went comes up and out of the bag comes up the blonde's panties, the passport photographs of the blonde, the pearl earring, which matched the one earring the blonde was wearing at the time mm-hmm. that she was found dead. Yeah. That's and it right there. The nail in the coffin was the credit card that he mm-hmm. used. The goddamn credit card. With his signature on it. And again, we find out from the police officer that the address that Bill gave for Cobb was actually for a Danny Lloyd, who was a man on vacation. That Danny Lloyd. And then the final shot kicks in, and it's just Cobb disappearing into the crowd. Of course it is. He's going through the crowd at the end. If I'm not mistaken, someone walks in front, and then he's not behind it. You know, to make it. He does the Jason Bourne. Yeah, he's literally disappearing. He just vanishes. Um, Q entered the Moby theme, you know. And- Cobb walks away with the money, which he is allowed to keep because the bald guy let him keep the money for killing the blonde, is mm-hmm. what is implied. So uh, I guess that brings us, do you have any like last thoughts about this film? Well, I mean, I just really, I mean, it was very reminiscent of when I like watched I don't know what movie it was. Maybe there will be blood. Uh, I don't know what it was. I watched a Paul Thomas Anderson movie and went, and it was so inspired to go back and watch the old stuff. It was actually, I went to the whole, his whole work when I actually watched the master and I went back and from the beginning and watched, and I was able to see going backwards to see the earlier works and earlier pieces. And it made me appreciate what built the future filmmaker. And mm-hmm. that's how I felt about this. This feels like, cause like I didn't, it's not that I didn't like the movie following. It's just, it's very, um, it feels like you've said, like we've said, it's just, it's, it feels like a student film in a, in a good way. It feels like a, it's like, you know, they did well with the budget, but there's so many little setups that they did that you would see once you know his future work, it makes you so appreciative. Like I almost feel like watching it in the lens that I did, having seen all of his other works made like, made me really appreciate it more. I almost feel like starting out with it, I would have been like, yeah, this is very creative, it's whatever, but very influenced by film noir and other classic stories of betrayal and whatnot. But to see how many of his nuggets had followed him along his career was really fascinating. Um, Apparently, 
Cobb steals the same clock in this movie as he does that appears in Memento, like little oh. things like that. I didn't know. There's like little trivia things like that. Um, and I just think even the things we've talked about them, just the little nuances that are reminders of other films. Um, it's cool to see a signature style. You've definitely seen guys like Tarantino. You you see it. It's a little harder to detect in guys like Scorsese, but Scorsese has it. just because he just because Scorsese has so such a wide range. Mm. But it's um to see that so early on from someone like Nolan is pretty cool because, like I said, if anything, even from a technical standpoint, the film is an impressive achievement. Because storytelling, like I said, it's it's fine, but it's really like just the way it's threaded together is so unique. I, you know, it's interesting. While we were talking about this movie and, you know, going down beat by beat, you know, you brought up and I brought up several times how things that happen in this movie happen in his other movies. And I guess mm. I, just through our discussions, I didn't, because when I was watching it, I didn't pick up on it as much as when we were discussing. Right. But he really does lay out a lot of what he was, what he ultimately is doing with his career mm-hmm. you know in this movie this is his thesis statement right. this is his, literally his introduction if you're writing an essay this is his introduction paragraph saying these are my concepts these are how i'm going to write like what i'm writing about that uh prestige analogy that you made i that didn't even cross my mind that mm-hmm. blew it like because that's what he that's what he does. He's he's interweaving similar themes. And it I don't think it makes him lazier, it makes him unoriginal, but it makes it makes him consistent. That's the word you brought up earlier. Mm-hmm. He's consistent because he says, Here are here are my tropes, like you said, here's our here's my setup and here's what I'm here are the tools I'm going to use, whether it be it time or hackers or criminals or or thieves or um the femme fatale or whatever you wanna just whatever you want to laser line that those elements have clearly followed him throughout his career. Um, Absolutely. But, but the question is, would do you think even he would have known that these are things he would want to use in the future? You know what I mean? And yeah. Well, in I guess our thesis, well, our takeaway from this episode is really that uh, you know Christopher Nolan is an auteur director. You know, he's he, he's he's earned it. He he has earned an auteur status. Um, and I guess that's my final thoughts on it as well. You know, like you said, it's not his best work at all. It's still an impressive feat, especially for $6,000, you know? Yeah, it's I, an incredible sign of, of what's to come, you know? Exactly. All right, so uh, I guess that concludes uh, yes. our discussion on following. But to uh, keep up with what we started last week, we, Josh and I figured we would give one movie each again that you can watch during uh, your Corona quarantine time. So, uh, Josh, what's uh, your pick for the week? My pick is going to be uh, 28 Days Later. <laughs> I'm going to go with the paranoid. I keep going with the, with the paranoid. With zombies. Well, yeah, well, yeah, it's, it's the Evil Dead. Is the, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Keep going. I think about 20 Days Later, good. Uh, and a little stress of Danny Boyle, a little uh, English invasion of, uh, huh. uh, yeah, more, you know, I like those undead things, man. I think they're, they're cool. Yeah. Well, what's, uh, what about 28 Days Later makes you go, this is a Corona teen kind of movie? Well, it's the, it's a glimpse of how horrible things can get. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if this whole thing just gets worse and they find that the people, uh, 
you know, if people if people die and then they come back to life as uh, rabid zombies, you know, that's that's pretty bad. <laughs> um, I, I like the the fear. I like to keep feeling uh, tapping to human emotions, and that's it, man. I just and twenty days later. I mean, that's. I mean, that's there's. I think zombie movies cross. Well, we can do a whole thing on this, but they cross the you know B movie can't be territory. But this is one of those movies that's very um very gripping and very um, dark and well done so and uh 28 days later has one of christopher nolan's uh bestest friends here uh is it um, cullian or cillian murphy the I... the the penis of of gillian murphy i think there's whoever it is it's, um oh you're talking about the man himself i'm talking about the man himself um yeah there's just um i don't know if it's cillian or cullian but whatever it is he's Cillian. in the movie Killian? Cillian? Cillian? I don't know. And I'm a huge Peaky Blinders fan. I should know this. I heard it's a great show. It is a great show. I mean, I'll have to. I won't say it's great. Don't, it's, come on, man. Just own it. If you, if you like it, you like it. No, no, no. Don't get me wrong. I really like it. But it's definitely not like, you know, it doesn't have the subtleties of, you know, like Mad Men or Breaking Bad. It's kind of just like not we are. Not everything does. Yeah, that's true. Peaky Blinders is very abrasive. It's like we are the peaky fucking blinders which they say over and over again. <laughs> it's really not a, um, it's not quite a pitch, but I'll, I'll take your word on it. No, it is really good. I, but I don't know. I feel like there are other shows I would recommend Sounds to like you before. Sounds like the Catalina then. fucking wine mixer, you know? Catalina fucking, fucking wine mixer. It's a peaky fucking blinders. I'm going to go in a complete different go direction yes. for my yeah. uh, choice in yep. the movie this week. Go on. And go with The Big Lebowski. That's, a, that's quite a film. It is one of my favorite movies of all time. Uh, and, okay. And what about during this time makes you think? Well, you know, during this crazy time, it's nice to just uh, sit back. I'm not going to tell you to smoke a doobie. Maybe you want to drink. We would but, never uh, promote. Such, such we would never promote such things such as never. the marijuana on no. this show. But smoke, um, smoke the marijuana like a cigarette. You can't. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Yeah. But, uh, you know, in these crazy times, it's nice to just sit back, smoke a nice dube, and chill with the dude. You know, it's one of those movies where it's so irreverent. You're watching it not for the plot in of itself. You're just watching it to just see what craziness befalls the dude in each minute of the movie. You know, you can watch it for the plot because it has a very interesting plot. But what really sucks you in are the characters and your, you know, just pure joy from them. You know, am I wrong? Am I wrong? See what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps? They peed on your fucking rug. <laughs> it really tied the room together. I, uh, to close up, I, I once took a film noir class in college. Mm-hmm. And they did all the classic film noir. But the last two movies we watched were Memento and Big Lebowski. That's hilarious. Because yeah, The Big Lebowski is a noir in the classic setting. It's just a matter of, you know, just in very much in vain of like The Big Sleep and uh, some of the other Maltese Falcon and some other Humphrey Bogart noirs. It lays out the concept of like, does the plot really matter? Because exactly. you walk away from the Maltese Falcon or the, the Big si- Sleep and you're like, what the fuck just happened? I have no idea. It almost it almost ends exactly where it begins. Like there's a crazy plot that happens, but the characters, the at least the protagonist, almost ends up in the exact same situation. Exactly. 
Um, you know, it's not about this transformation they went through. I mean, yes, it is, but it's also like their situation is going to revert back to normal, no matter what, you know, whether the dude, you know, doesn't get his rug, gets his rug back or not. It doesn't matter. There's, <laughs> it's never about this plot. It's just this, you're almost like sit back. You're, you're almost just stuck with yourself sitting back and dwelling on what, like you said, like what just happened, you know? Well, obviously you are not a golfer. And uh, I think that's how we will uh, leave this segment of whose filmography is it anyway. So disrespectful. So disrespectful. All right. Uh, Josh, is there anywhere that the good people can find you on the interwebs? Um, No, there's not. Not yet. Still not yet. No, not yet. I'm going to recommend Mr. Mr. Film Art. I think there's a lot of good (laughs) renowned. Uh, film-related drawings there where I can, um, you know, that's where I'll stalk. There you go. Well, <laughs> you heard it here. I guess I don't need to promote myself anymore, but you can find me at Mr. Filmart on Instagram and uh, Twitter, but I really don't use Twitter, so don't annoy me there. Don't find him All on right. Twitter. Mr. Filmart, we're blowing it up. Give him that blue check mark, folks. Yeah, son. Hashtag Mr. Filmart. All right. You heard it here. All right. All right. Have a good and fun rest of your quarantine and hey maybe watch a nolan film